Good morning again, Rogers Park. I'm John McGill. I serve as the associate pastor here. Grateful to be worshiping with you today. I was just at our Breakers community at Edgewater. They say hello to you. They love you as well. Someday come say hi to them. Today we continue our series in 1 Corinthians. We are at the end of chapter 10, starting in verse 23, and we're going to the first verse of chapter 11. And here we encounter more discussion about food sacrifice to idols, to eat or not to eat. Now, this is the end of Paul's discourse, this section, 8 through 10, and we will move on to another subject next week. But I want to remind us right now that even though a great portion of us in the room rarely or perhaps never have encountered a situation where we are dealing with food sacrifice to idols, there is still much, much for us to take out of these texts and even apply to our everyday lives. And so let's dig into the text. Chapter 10, 23 through 11.1 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, not for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I did not mean your conscience, but his or hers. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you again. We thank you, Father, that we get to open up your word and hear what it is that you intend to communicate to us today. And Father, we have been looking at this topic of idol food for a little bit of time now, Father, and we again come to you, Lord, asking to seek your counsel and help as there is more to explore. We may not know yet exactly how that fits into our lives, though we have been learning that, but Lord, would you open our eyes and ears to hear what it is that you want us to take from the text today? And as we glean things out of this text, Father, would the things that stick with us be the things that are of you to make much of Christ and to bring you the glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every single one of us in the room, every single day, makes decisions. There's many things that we decide to do. Do I turn left? Do I turn right? Is this where I put my resources? Is this how I should say this or that? Should I eat this or that? If you Google how many decisions that a typical person makes in the course of a day, the number that you see pop up on the screen is 35,000. 
35,000 decisions that we are all making every single day on average. That is a gargantuan number. Now granted, a lot of those decisions are on autopilot. A lot of them are very easy to make. If we decide to turn left, it's because the grocery store is over there. If we decide to catch a ball, we catch it because it's heading toward our person. But there's a lot of decisions we have that aren't so easy. And in the moment, we, we develop criteria and frameworks for making these decisions. Sometimes our frameworks include elements like, will this be best for my family? Will this be profitable for the company? Will this get me to my destination faster? Will this make me happy? There is nothing wrong with those questions in and of themselves. But as God's people, those of us who know who God is and work the way that we have seen him work in our lives, are there other elements for us to consider? Are there other questions that God calls us to ask when making decisions? How does a Christian decide what he or she does. God cares about our decisions very much, but he doesn't leave us in the dark. And he has already helped us in a big way. The largest way that he has helped us in our decision making is by the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus guide us along the way, but he has decided to seek us out first. And Jesus already lived the perfect life on our behalf. And he went to the cross, took away our sins, past, present, and future. And now for those of us who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, no matter what decisions we have made in the past, no matter how heinous, no matter how ugly, because of Jesus' work on the cross, we get to be with him forever in paradise. What a deal. And it's such a great deal. That out of gratitude, those of us that follow Christ and remember how it is that he has changed our hearts and continues to do so, feel compelled to make decisions that align with what Jesus has taught us, namely, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. But God knows who we are. God knows we stumble. God knows we are still in desperate need of his help. Today we turn to the text to receive more help from him. We've been talking about eating food, sacrificed to idols for a while now. Jamie taught on this subject back in chapter 8. That was back in January before we had a couple celebration services and so forth. Last week, Phil taught us through the middle portion of chapter 10, also addressing eating food, sacrificed to idols in the previous two messages we heard regarding idol food, Paul was mostly addressing eating food in the temple setting where idols are housed. Eating food in the dining halls of these temples of worship was a major component of everyday life in Corinth. Temples functioned like a social center and there were numerous festivals that honored gods or idols and goddesses and idols were all over the place. And if you go to ancient Roman cities or if you go to museums, including the Art Institute, you will see these white marble statues. And if you went to these ancient cities, you would have seen these marble statues all over the place. Except these statues were not white. There wasn't a sea of white. These were colorful towns. The buildings were colored. We have to get rid of this white marble vision in our minds. These, these were colorful places. And these statues had skin color skin painted on them. 
and their eyes were colored, and their hairs were colored, and their clothing was very colorful. And the artisans made it that way to compel people to want to know more about these gods and to worship these gods, to make them feel like they meant something in their lives. And when people would pass these gods, they would feel compelled to give these gods a sacrificial offering, particularly when they wanted something. Altogether, the long and the short of it is, there were plenty of opportunities to eat sacrifice foods to idols in the city of Corinth. Now, bear with me. Paul's made it clear to the church in Corinth that eating food sacrificed to idols in the idol temple should not be done. That would not be good. That would not be a good Christian witness if you are eating foods in the houses of worship meant for worship of these so-called gods. That does not give off the right message. If other people are eating those temples are eating in those temples as a form of worship to these false gods well whether or not you believe in these gods to everyone else it still likes you still looks like you are worshiping these gods so as a christian someone who only believes in the one true god and seeks to honor the one true god it does not make good sense to eat in these idol temples give off the impression that you are a part of the idol cult not to mention there would likely be demonic activity in those spaces and even though god would know your heart throughout these tricky everyday life situations You would not want to confuse the people that you are around. You would not want to cause your brother and sister to stumble. But Paul is not done finishing his teaching yet regarding this subject. There is still some more loose ends to tie up. Again, whereas the last section, the section that I kind of just zipped through, talked about eating foods primarily in the temple setting, we are looking at two more places today where eating foods, sacrificed to idols, might come in today, come into play, excuse me. The second, right? So there's a temple, and the second is food bought in the marketplace, and the third, food bought, food eaten at an unbeliever's household. Again, in this latter portion of chapter 10 that we're reading today, Paul will conclude this section of food sacrificed to idols, and then we will move to another topic next week. But for today, in Paul's final discourse, we receive some of the most important principles for Christian living. As we look at these two additional situations, we're going to look at three very important principles. The text says followers of Christ should involve ourselves to determine what it is that we do in everyday life. And the questions again are these, right? Again, if I am doing something, if I'm deciding what to do, these are principles that we need to ask ourselves. Will this build someone up? Will this bring glory to God? Will this win someone to Christ? We'll have time to unpack that. Let's look at this first one. Will this build someone else? If what I'm doing right now, is it building someone up? We find this principle out of verse 23, the first verse of our section today. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You heard the phrase, all things are lawful, repeated twice here. Paul repeats them here to provide himself an opportunity to qualify that statement. All things are lawful. Another way to hear that is all things are permissible, or another way to hear that is I can do anything that I want to. This was a slogan that the Corinthians adopted from Paul's teaching, but 
they misconstrued it and they misapplied it. And it's very easy to misapply that statement. As Christians, we do have a kind of freedom that non-Christians don't have. Christians have freedom from bondage. Christians have freedom from penalty. Christians have freedom from guilt, even when we mess up. But just because we are free to do something doesn't ultimately determine if we do something or not. And just to be clear, where Scripture says it is forbidden to do something, we should not do that. And additionally, there are other factors, and Paul qualifies them here for us. In the things we choose to do, it is important to evaluate if we are building someone up. So what does that look like? Well, we ask, does what I'm doing make someone look more like Christ? Does it edify? Does it instruct? Does it encourage? Does it benefit someone else? Or does it tear them down? Does it witness poorly? Is it other-centered or is it self-centered? So often our tendency is to choose to do things that build only up ourselves, please ourselves, serve our own self-interest. But one question Christian maturity begs us to ask is what I'm doing right now, is it building others up? Let's look at the second situation Paul presents to the Corinthians, eating food that was bought in the marketplace. Again, so often these idols were in these temples and these temples were placed near the marketplace because the priests would go into these temples, they would butcher up the sacrificed food, and then the food would go straight to the market. So a very large percentage of all the food found in the marketplace was food sacrificed to idols. But it's important to note that not all the food bought in the marketplace was sacrificed to idols. If it was, this would be a different passage. What is Paul's instruction? Should the Corinthians eat food bought in the marketplace or not? We find the answer in verse 25. He says, buy and eat the meat in the marketplace without raising any questions. Don't ask if it was sacrifice. Don't make it an issue. Now let's say you didn't take Paul's counsel here in verse 25. What would that look like for your household? If you went to the marketplace and bought some meat, you would ask the butcher if this was sacrificed, and if he said it wasn't, you would ask, well, did it touch any sacrificed food? And you would bring that food home, and then your spouse or your Christian roommate would ask, hey, is, was this food sacrificed? And they would say, you would say no, but you'd say, well, how do you know? Are you so sure? And you would go through this procedure for every single meal. That is what eating would look like for you if you were living by these rules. That is not the Christian life. There is freedom in Christian life. Whereas the Pharisees went great lengths, inspecting food, making sure it was prepared correctly, Christians can remember that what God has made clean is clean. And in verse 26, we're reminded that since God is the ultimate source of food, it cannot be contaminated. Rather, if it is food, it can be eaten with thanksgiving. Food is God's creation. It is his gift. It is his provision to us. But Paul's not done yet. He gives the Corinthians a third situation, eating food in the home of an unbeliever. Now, what exactly is this situation? Basically, if you were a Christian in the Corinthian society, you would have hopefully had friends outside of your holy huddle and friends eat together. But if an unbeliever in Corinth 
invited you and, over, and others over to, to dinner and there, was, there would be the distinct possibility that the food there would have been sacrificed to an idol. So what do you do? It's not conclusive that the food is sacrificed to an idol, but there's a high probability. What's the instruction we find for this situation? We go to verse 27, we see, go ahead, eat the meal, but don't ask if the food was sacrificed to an idol. However, if someone at the meal tells you this food was sacrificed to an idol, then don't eat the food. Not because of your own conscience, but for the conscience of other people at the table. Christians know that idols are not actual gods, that there is only one God, and all food belongs to God, and sometimes we need those reminders. But in this sticky situation, it's not what the Christian knows that counts. We've already learned that one's puffing up of knowledge creates all sorts of wayward tendencies. It's what another person in the room is thinking at that time that matters. And Christians don't want to do anything to draw someone away from Christ. You might confuse them. Or you might get someone back onto routinely eating idle food in the temple, which they should not have been doing, but have learned since then to not do. Eating food that may have been sacrificed to an idol is a different situation than eating food in the temple where the food is clearly being sacrificed to an idol. And because there are a number of notions to consider when it comes to eating food offered to idols, the text basically says, look to others and consider their welfare when making a decision. Look to others and consider their welfare when making a decision. Now at this point, some of you in the room are saying those are way too many details you've just provided. Some of us are also saying, how does this teaching on sacrificial food given to idols apply to me and concern me in 2023? Well, we could jump straight to more universal truths that help us and benefit us, and we will do that. But I have to make a temporary detour, just for the moment. Friends, we live in Rogers Park, or we live close to Rogers Park. 85 languages spoken, 35 languages right in this building. I know of a place less than a mile away where people eat food offered to idols. And Nikki and I have some of those people over to our house every now and then. And we eat meals together. And they will ask us, is there any egg in these meals? And we will make sure not to put any egg. They, we know we are going to ask, they are going to ask that question. We make sure to prepare it properly so not to offend them. These are people that we like. These are people that we love. These are people that we are supposed to witness the love of Christ to. That is what we are called to do. These are people that were at our soccer camp last summer. Lord willing, they will be at the one this summer. Nikki and I have never eaten a meal at their temple and never will. But if we were to sit down at a meal, perhaps at their house, maybe some of you are at that house as well, and for some reason, someone announced that food was sacrificed to an idol, then, in that situation with people today, people that we know, we would say, well, we can't eat this food. And it wouldn't be because of the food. We're outside of the temple. But because of anyone's conscience at the table, 
and how it is that they might be processing the situation. Don't want to confuse, cause others to stumble. We as Christians are simply obligated to love our neighbors well. Now, there is no reason to believe that we've ever eaten food that came from the temple. They make food in their kitchen just like everyone else. They buy it from the grocery store, eat it just like everyone else, and so forth. But let's press forward now. Paul makes clear that Christians are not called to be food inspectors, food that might have come from an idol, could be eaten, unless it was explicitly identified as coming from an idol. And in that case, you have to consider others' spiritual welfare. Now from here, I want us to hear one of those words I just said, others. When we read Paul's writing, we find it very clear, him, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he had a very others focus. We read this passage and look at whether we, or more immediately the Corinthian Christians, are permitted to eat food sacrificed to idols. Paul very clearly is thinking about others. Our own good isn't one of the criteria he mentions in this passage for making decisions. Yikes! That almost doesn't sound right. I mean, we do have to care for ourselves, right? Well, what does the text say in verse 24? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Oh man, what happened to myself? What happened to us? What happened to me? Christianity is a faith that says, God, over everything else in my life, I desire for you to be worshipped. Christianity is also a faith that says, God, Please help me to love my neighbor more today than I did yesterday. But one of the beauties of the Christian faith is care for oneself isn't by any means excluded. In fact, we don't even have to be the ones doing the bulk of our self-care. We have each other. If each of us are building one another up, I am caring for you, you are caring for me, we are caring for everyone in, in our rows and so forth. But it doesn't end there. What does Jesus have to say about his care for us? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in 1 John 5.4, what do we read? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Rest and victory we receive through Jesus Christ. When we are making decisions, we don't have to constantly ask all this, at all the same time questions like, will it be fun? Will it be exciting? Will I enjoy it? Will I get into trouble? Will this get me to the front of the line? Will this position me ahead of others? Will this make me the most money? Some of those questions, okay. Some of them, not so great. We examine our situations in life. If you are like me, we ask all sorts of questions, hyper-analyzing every single scenario, trying to always arrive to the decision that is best for me with missing criteria. 
and we white-knuckle our way through life, constantly trying to get a little bit more than we had before. When we already have rest and victory through Jesus Christ. To all of us who have received him as Lord and Savior, when we have that, we no longer have to play silly games to get ahead in life. Rather, we have freedom to take the focus off of ourselves and focus on others. Maybe today you can't do that. And if that's you, I want you to know you are not alone. There is help. There is people that want to love you here. Throughout this passage, we see that focusing not on oneself not only shows itself in building up others, it also shows itself in principle number two, which we are now going to look at. When making a decision, we find this principle in verse 31. reads like this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Principle number two. Will this decision, will what I'm doing right now, will this bring glory to God? Simply asking this question is going to be helpful for us. But what might this look like? <clears throat> well, for one, it may be helpful to understand that God is inherently glorious. And his character attributes attest to this. God is holy. God is sovereign. God is perfect. God is just. God is righteous. God is love. If we consider ourselves to be followers of Christ, people that are saved by grace through faith, do our actions and words reflect who God is? When we do something or say something, will people be able to see God working in us? Is there holiness working in us? Is there righteousness working in us? Is there a heart for justice working in us? Is there godliness working in us? And do our actions speak to this? Is what I'm doing making me look great? Or is it making God look great? And maybe sometimes we just have to say, Thanks to God. If we're drinking water, if we're drinking soda, if we're drinking coffee, somewhere in there is there a thankfulness to God. If I'm eating a steak or a microwave meal or a stale piece of bread, is there still space to praise God in that situation? If I'm trying to decide, do I buy this house? Do I take this job? Do I read this book? Do I watch this show? Will this decision bring glory to God? Can reading a fictional book bring glory to God? Yep, sure can. Just take a moment to pause. Be still with God. Seek out how. For Paul, bring glory to God meant bringing as many people as possible to come to know Christ. In verse 33, we see Paul stating, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Here we find principle number three for decision making. Is what I'm doing going to lead people to Christ or away from Christ? Sounds like principle number one, building others up, but it's different. And let me just give you some illustrations. I'm a lifelong Cub fan. If I visit my buddies on the south side, maybe I'll take my cub, fan ha cub hat off and put on my socks cap. No, that would be so stupid. They would call me out. That was just a joke. I do have a buddy, exceptional D1 athlete that I went to college with. He claimed to be a fan of both the Cubs and the Sox. 
and he accepts all the flack that we give him. What's a better example? If you are a missionary reaching a far-off indigenous tribe, no need to wear all kinds of technology. That might be a barrier to them knowing Christ. Maybe you're reaching a people group in Chicago. They never wear slacks. They never wear a button-down. No need to wear slacks and a button-down or a beautiful dress. If you're planning a small group outing and someone that week just acknowledge that they have an issue with alcohol, don't schedule the weekend's fun activities at a bar or at the office. If there's a person you used to have spiritual conversations with three years ago but barely see now because you've optioned to be remote, maybe go back to the office one or two days a week. Re-engage with that person so that they could see Jesus in you. All right, well, Throughout this final exploration of vital food in 1 Corinthians, we find a set of principles to help us navigate that topic and just about any other topic if it involves us deciding to do something. Again, that's extraordinarily large. I've given you the three principles we looked at today in time. They prayerfully become second nature and I'm still working on it. Will my decision build others up? Will my decision bring glory to God? Will my decision lead others to Christ? And so how else does this look like in practice? Well, first off, we have to understand that Christian decision-making not, is not a me-first mentality. And we live in a society that is ever-increasingly focused on what is best for me. How does this benefit me? What are my feelings telling me about me instead of what does God have to say about me? Which is far better than what I have to say about myself. Christians have freedom in decisions and we need to know and we should limit our freedoms and we should, when, when we should afford greater license in our freedoms. The best way to answer that is to observe the situation with outward focus to God and to our neighbor instead of an inward focus. When we choose to do something at work, is it going to cause my coworkers to compromise themselves spiritually? When we drink that alcoholic beverage, is it going to cause my friend to stumble in a habit that he or she is not supposed to be into? When we sleep with our girlfriend or boyfriend, are we causing that person to stumble with an outward focus? When we sleep with our spouse, might we go to bed with their pleasure as our main objective, not our own? When we negotiate a business deal, Might we negotiate for the good of each party and build a partnership rather than tear each other down? When we decide to purchase a vehicle, might we adopt a wartime mentality and brainstorm how that new car might be able to be used to benefit our neighbors? When we we make a large purchase, might we pray over it first and be willing to surrender that desire if that isn't of God? The final word I have for you today is Paul's mega capstone that we find at the end of this passage, the capstone of these last three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When we look at food sacrifice to idols and all the parallel grace situations and all the situations in our lives that aren't so gray, places where we need to make a decision in life. Paul wants to make clear we don't have to live in the muck 
of not knowing what principles are best. Rather, we can stick to the principles that give us rest and victory, build each other up, do all to the glory of God, draw people to Christ. I am going to pray in just a moment here. We're going to start something new this week. Deacons will be up front during our last song. If anyone needs prayer, please approach the deacons and submit to the deacons what it is that you have. They will be happy to pray over to you. When Jesus came to earth, he was entitled to all the riches and glories that you could possibly think of, whatever idealized lifestyle that you've thought of, he was entitled to that times 10,000. But instead, we have a savior who came to earth, a king who was entitled to everything, but instead had you in mind. Maybe there is some kind of decision that you are facing and you have faithfully applied some of these principles, the ones that apply most, but you still don't know what to do, look to Jesus, just like the Apostle Paul did, and ask God to be your guide. Let's pray. Father, we bless you again this morning. We thank you, Father, that we get to open up your word again, perhaps be convicted, hopefully be stirred more closer to you, Father. Lord, we have looked at a lot of things about food being sacrificed to idols. Perhaps we're still sorting some of that out. But Father, the things that are of you, the things draw us to Jesus, the things that help us to build up our neighbor, those things that bring you glory, Father, would you cultivate that in our heart? Father, as we move outside of these walls, would we resemble more who Jesus is to your glory and to our joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.